Thank you very much, Laura, for ministering to music. Paul occasionally thanked churches for what God was doing in their life. I just want to say in way of encouragement, thank you for being the body of Christ. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One is for caring for one another, reaching out to one another in various ways in the day-by-day living each week. And then also just the impact that you have upon the world in your daily living. And I'm not giving specifics, but when I say upon the world, I'm referring to unbelievers as you seek to live godly. And also thanks to those who went to Awana Camp, who helped out, those who gave, and those who ministered, ministered for Awana Camp. That was Friday night and Saturday. Nice weather, and I think went well. Let's pray together. Father, we interact with your word. We want to be open, sensitive to hearing, to living it out in our lives. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. This morning I pondered how I was going to begin my sermon. And I gave serious thought as I get up without saying a word, walking up here and flipping the table over and letting everything go helter-skelter. I also gave the thought of walking over to the organ and taking the bench and flipping it. Flipping the speaker and walking over to the piano and getting someone's help and flip the piano over and flip the bench over and then say, you've made the building in which you worship a den of robbers and of music and then walk out. You say, Pastor, have you lost it? No. If I had done that, it would have been to illustrate what Jesus did in Mark's Gospel. The day after his triumphal entry, as he goes into the temple, he does some dramatic and very drastic things. It would be like Jesus getting on Christian radio, on primetime television, and say, I just want to let you know that David Jeremiah, Chuck Swindoll, John MacArthur, they're all hypocrites. And I want you to know that many musicians, Christian musicians, are whitewashed tombs. Let's turn to Mark chapter 11. Reading together verses 12 through 26. Mark 11, 12 through 26. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer, 
for all nations. But you made it a den of robbers. The chief priest and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus does two very dramatic things here. He curses a fig tree, and he does some very strong action in the temple. Now keep in mind as we discuss this passage that Jesus is unique. He is the Son of God. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit from the time frame of Mark's gospel. Is sensitive to God's Spirit, and he's able to resist Satan. This character of Jesus is expressed as he proclaims the good news, as he taught with authority, as he quieted and cast out an evil spirit, as he healed Peter's mother-in-law, as he healed various diseases and drove out many demons, as he prayed and talked to his father, as he preached in the synagogue and drove out demons, as he healed a man with leprosy. And I could go on with item after item revealed in Mark's gospel as far as Jesus and who he is. He's the one that curses the fig tree. He's the one who drives out the money changers. As we think about this passage, keep in mind what is taking place in terms of location. We know that Jesus had come from Jericho. He comes to Jerusalem. His triumphal entry is taking place in Mark 11, 1 through 11. And then the day of his triumphal entry, after being in the temple, he went to Bethany. The next day, he's coming from Bethany to Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple court. Now, as you study scripture, there's some things that come through in the structure of a passage. In verses 1 through 11 of Mark, we have Jesus as a triumphal Davidic king. The triumphal entry is taking place. Then we have the cursing of the fig tree. And then we have a temple scene. Then we go back to the fig tree that is withered. And asking for what you want, you know, if it means moving a mountain. And then we go back to Jesus again. As Davidic king, rejected, but nevertheless validated. And as you think about structure, it's very important to understand the text. Because Mark's placement of the cursing of the fig tree and Jesus' action in the temple in this sandwich pattern signifies that he intends readers to see in the fate of the unfruitful fig tree as the judgment of God on the unfruitful temple. Christ said to the fig tree, you know, he cursed the fig tree, there's to be no more fruit, and we'll discuss that next week as far as what is involved. And then he goes into the temple scene and he turns over the tables of the money changers and so on. And then we come back to the fig tree. And then he's Davidic king. As Davidic king, he can curse a fig tree to illustrate that the temple 
And its worship is not accepted. And that is being said to Jewish leaders. The cursing of the fig tree, as you study scripture, has long been recognized as a prophetic and symbolizing both the hollow reality behind the imposing religious structure that is the temple, and as in the prophets, the temple represents the unrepentant religious leaders. And this influenced all of Israel. The cursing of the fig tree is a symbol of Christ, basically saying there's no good worship in the temple in Jerusalem. We won't turn to these passages, but in Isaiah 34, in verse 4, it talks about a fig tree and talks about judgment. Jeremiah 29, 17 mentions a fig tree in the context of judgment. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 12 mentions a fig tree in the terms of judgment. Joel chapter 1 mentions a fig tree in terms of judgment. Micah chapter 7 and verse 1 mentions a fig tree in terms of judgment. So Jesus reaches Jerusalem, and what does he do? He enters a temple area, and he begins to drive out those who are buying and selling there. He overturns the tables, the money changers, and the benches of those who sell doves, and wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through. And then he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Quite dramatic action. Now, as we think about the temple, there's three temples. You have the temple in this setting would be Herod's temple. You had the original temple that Solomon would have built. You had Zerubbabel's temple. And then you had Herod's temple. And this would be Herod's temple. It is not completed at this point in time in Jesus' ministry. It would have been in the 60s that it would have been completed some 30 years after the time of Christ. The temple consisted of four divisions. It was immense. It was grandiose. The first and largest division, the court of the Gentiles, was an open area or open air area measuring 500 yards long by 325 yards wide which would be equal to about 35 acres it was enclosed by a portico supported by rows of columns columns according to Josephus the columns were 30 feet high and so massive that it took three persons with hands joined together to surround one of them at the base. The columns were crowned with Corinthian capitals, and the ceiling of the porticos was ornamented with wood carvings. In the area enclosed by this massive perimeter of porticos, merchants sold sheep and doves for sacrifice in exchange foreign currency. The temple precinct, were overseen by the Sadducees 
And the immense volume of trade and exchange in the court of the Gentiles was crucial, not only for maintaining worship, but also for the financial gain of the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. The volume of the trade that would have taken place was very, very great. When the temple was sacrificed in 66 AD, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed for Passover. The other three divisions of the temple, the court of women, the court of Israel, and the Holy of Holies belong within the sanctuary, a freestanding edifice of 150 yards by 100 yards wide. So we're dealing here with something that is massive. We're dealing with something that is very, very great in terms of what Christ is doing. The court of the Gentiles was virtually a stock market of animal dealers and money changers, all of whom were necessary to ensure proper sacrifices and offerings. You know, for the pilgrims who would come at festivals. The noise in the court of the Gentiles was terrific. Merchants would shout from their stalls to customers, and noisy, haggling, pushing pilgrims jostled one another for position. The incredible din was heightened by the constant brawling of livestock, the aroma of livestock made it a county fair and the stock exchange all rolled up in one. To top it off, the court of the Gentiles was used by regular Jerusalem people to go from one part of the city to another. Jesus is entering this area And what does he do? He sees the temple for what it is. My house. Will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. Now think about Jesus being a meek man. The meekest man who ever lived. The most gentle person who ever lived. He said in Matthew 11, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. In Matthew 5, 5, he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But meekness is not weakness. It is rather strength under control. Meekness has the strength to not only defend oneself, but meekness will boldly defend others. And here Jesus defends the holiness of God. Jesus displays a quality here that we have a hard time understanding. We cannot see Jesus coming into a church and flipping a table over, flipping a piano over, flipping an organ over. We say that's just not his character. He did in the temple. And he quotes from Isaiah 56 and verse 7. Now, when the New Testament 
quotes from the Old Testament, it's important to go back to the Old Testament and reflect a little on the passage. In Isaiah 56, 1 and 2, there's a summons to the justice and righteousness of the law. Isaiah says there's got to be right relationships, but they were not present in Israel at that time. Then in verses 3 through 7, there's encouragement to foreigners who embrace the Lord that they too can worship. And then in chapter 56, verse 9, through chapter 57 and verse 13, Isaiah direct comments against the corrupt leaders. The quote itself comes from verse 7 of Isaiah 56. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Israel, at that time in Isaiah's day, was not using the temple for that purpose. And by Jesus quoting from that, he is saying, I'm rejecting the temple in Jerusalem. Mark eleven seventeen, quoting from Isaiah, means that the chief priest, teachers of the law, elders are corrupt leaders. They are not displaying justice and righteousness in their relationships. Again, get the picture. It's like Jesus getting on primetime television and condemning David Jeremiah, James Dobson, condemning John MacArthur and many musical groups and saying they're not on track. Then we find that Jesus also quotes from Jeremiah. Jesus quotes from Jeremiah, chapter 7 and verse 11. That should be chapter 7 and verse 11, not chapter 1. But Jeremiah, chapter 7 and verse 11. Again, the context is important. Jeremiah probably spoke Jeremiah 7, 1 through 5, during one of the three annual pilgrimages. And that ties in with what's happening in Mark 11. Israel must turn from her self-deception and amend her ways if they want the Lord to dwell among them. That being brought out. In verses 3 through 7, the Lord sees the temple of Israel back in Jeremiah's day as a den of robbers because they persisted in their rebellious ways, disdaining his warnings and refusing to repent when he called. And according to Jeremiah 7, 13 through 20, judgment is irrevocable in that day. Judgment would come on Israel. Just as in the temple in Jeremiah's day was rejected, the temple in Jesus' day is being rejected due to incorrect worship.
Jesus overturns the money changer, the tables of the money changers, and so on. He's taking strong action. See, Mark's quotes, the temple court was to be a house of prayer for all nations. But it became a place of business. The chief priest and teachers of the law and elders had rejected John the Baptist. They did not display justice and righteousness in their relationships. Jesus rejects them. Jesus is strongly rejecting the religious leaders and their worship. You know, the cream of the crop in that day, he's rejecting them. In Jesus, Israel's long-awaited Davidic Messiah and Lord of the temple has unexpectedly come. But because of corruption and failure to be light to the nations, the temple is rejected along with its leaders. What happens as a result? The text in Mark goes on to describe how the leaders responded to Jesus. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. They didn't accept his rebuke. They didn't look, stop and look at themselves and say, something's going on here that's not right. We need to change. Rather, they try to deal with the one who confronted them. They looked for a way to kill him because they feared him. They were terrified at Jesus. They're frightened about Jesus because the whole crowd is amazed at his teaching. The people are amazed at the teaching of Jesus. Apparently he taught them but the leaders are looking for a way to kill Jesus. Jesus takes very strong action. Let's suppose you go to a Christian concert. And an unknown man comes out to that concert and he takes a guitar and breaks it. He takes a drum and stabs a hole in it. And he takes other instruments and just throws them away. And he says, there will be no performance tonight because these leaders, these musicians have made this a den of robbers. That's basically what Jesus is doing. He's radical. Meek and humble, but very radical. Let's think about some applications for our lives. Since Jesus is who he claims to be, what kind of life should we live? Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Jesus claims to be deity. It's demonstrated over and over again in Mark. What kind of life should we live? 
I sense that in Christian America, that far too often we miss who Jesus is and his character, his identity, his being. He alone is sufficient. Our lives seem to show, show it in that we run from one empty book, program, music group, speaker, etc. to another. We're always looking for something else. Well, if I get this book, if I get this program, if I go to this seminar, if I hear the speaker, he'll help me get over the hump. Just stop and think. How many of us think this speaker, that book, this concert, that counselor, this program will help me to grow or to get victory. Stop looking. Turn to Christ alone. Rely on Christ alone. And I think we leaders in Christian America are the most guilty. See, what do you mean? How many leaders, pastors and missionaries and other people are looking for some program that will make their church grow? They're advertised in every Christian magazine. You've got to have this book. You've got to have this program. You've got to go to this concert. You've got to go to this seminar. It'll help you accomplish what you want to accomplish. And rarely do you see an ad that simply says, don't attend this concert. Don't attend this <clears throat> seminar. Don't look at this method. Just Jesus. In Jesus alone. Rely on Christ. I've got alone. God may use a book. God may use a speaker. God may use musicians. I'm not saying they're wrong. But it's Christ. And that's where he's coming from. You have this temple. You have all this worship. You sell all these animals. It's Christ. Not sure how to word it, but it's Christ. All that is religious today is not accepted by God, by Christ. The right thing may be done, but it is empty. Here's Jesus taking on the religious system of the day, and he says, It's empty. And as you look down through the pages of history, you can have a lot of religion. But where is the heart? Tied in with this passage, relationships which display 
Spirit-produced qualities are the acid test for church leaders, missionaries, musicians, and pastors. Positions, roles, etc. are a distant second. Jesus, in this passage, is condemning leaders. And as you compare it with Isaiah and Jeremiah, he's saying these leaders did not have godly relationships because they didn't have them in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they didn't have them here. The leaders in Jesus' day were looking out for themselves. They didn't have godly qualities. So the issue in looking for a church looking for leader is not how well will he do with our church? Will he help our church grow and prosper? The issue is, is the fruit of the Spirit evident? And I would say begin with looking for humility. As you study Scripture, a prime characteristic of leaders down through Israel through the church is the issue of humility. The leaders that Jesus confronted here weren't very humble because they're looking for a way to kill Jesus. They didn't come in brokenness and say, Jesus, we're wrong. Rather, they seek to kill him. Look for humility than love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And then look for heavenly wisdom. So suppose a church is looking for a pastor, of which I know one now. My question is, will humility come up when they're considering who to pastor? Will that be one of their first questions? Is this man humble? And does he display the fruit of the Spirit? The scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the Sanhedrin, they were not humble, they were proud. Jesus condemns them. Just thinking about how we live today and how we respond. Individuals who are not humble will not accept rebuke, correction. Thus they defend themselves and strike against those who rebuke or correct them. Humble people accept rebuke and correction and seek to change. Proud people lash out at the person who seeks to rebuke them or correct them. Proud people protect themselves. Humble people are broken. So as we think about Jesus, it's a pretty strong character in how he responds. Why is he so brokenhearted? Because the very worship that was to exalt God was doing the opposite. So he clears the temple and says, we're rejecting. I'm rejecting temple worship. And that is in the context of the cursing of the fig tree, which is a symbol of the temple being rejected. Stop and think. 
in light of what we have shared this morning, has the Lord spoken to you? What are you going to do with it? That's your choice. Okay, Lord, I want to apply it. I don't want to be like the chief priests and teachers of the law. I want to be humble. I want to be broken, willing to let you work in my life for your glory. Let's pray together. Father, in many respects, we're dealing with a passage that is just kind of hard to wrap our minds around because here we have Jesus, whom we tend to think is meek and gentle, overturning tables, overturning benches, telling people they have made it a den of robbers. May we stop and ponder about our worship Stop and ponder about our lives and be open to your ministering to us so that we're doers of your word and not hearers only. May we as a body be concerned about your glory and living in light of the fact that it's Christ and Christ alone. And as we would come further in that next week, may we again be open and sensitive. We love you, Father. We want to be found faithful. And when we stray, even in a small way, bring us up short so we can walk in harmony with you again for your glory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.